Well, good morning, Genesis House. Why don't we uh, turn to 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Peter 2, 17. In continuation in our sermon series, why don't we stand and read the word of the Lord together. We're going to read to verse 22. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the violence of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this uh, sermon today is not exactly the most lighthearted for family, or sorry, for Father's Day, but um, it is your word nonetheless, and we don't have the freedom to pick and choose uh, as we work through a book. Uh, your, your words come in order and in a sequence for a reason, and so we're here today to embrace your word and to learn from it, and uh, yeah, we just look to uh, take your words to, to heart and apply them in our lives in whichever way your Holy Spirit directs us, and we look forward to our time together and uh, our discussion after, as you change us from the inside out. In Christ's name, amen. So before we dive into our passage today, we're gonna do what we always do before each sermon, and that's just do a quick review of the previous message. So if you remember from last time when we gathered, uh, we looked at the characteristics of false teachers that marked the church in Peter's day. And there were really two key traits to these men that Peter highlighted. Um, good to recognize because we can often see these markers in false teachers today. But the first was in their promotion of a sensual lifestyle. Uh, verse 10, they were indulgers in the flesh, as Peter says. And um, the issue for Peter here was that not only were these men living this, this lifestyle themselves, they were promoting this lifestyle within the Christian community. They were entering into the churches and teaching people that they could live immoral lives in relationship to Jesus Christ. And they were attempting to draw people away from the true gospel through their deception. But the second trait was their arrogance. We see this also in verse 10. They were des described as despising authority. Not only did they deny the lordship of Jesus in their lives, they slandered and mocked the, the demonic uh, supernatural world. Something that uh, God's uh, good angels didn't even dare do. And if you want to know more about that, because that's an interesting topic, I, you can listen to the, the previous message about what that actually meant. But because we spent so much time then on speaking about their, their arrogance and their, uh, their despising of authority and their, you know, and their promoting of a sensual lifestyle, I'm not going to really spend much time today on verse 18. 
If you look at verse 18, it says these men speak out arrogant words of vanity and they entice fleshly desires by sensuality. So again, these are just a repeat of what we've already looked at. So there's no point for me to go over this again. But what I do want to look at though is verse 17. Verse 17, because here Peter provides us with two interesting word pictures to describe the teaching ministry of these men. Uh, the, verse, the, the previous chapter was speaking more about the characteristics of these men, but not too much about their teaching. Here we get an idea of what these guys are like um, in, through 17 and 18, but what their teaching ministry is like. But, he, but this is what he says. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm from whom the black darkness has been reserved. Really, this illustration is, speaks of the emptiness or the disillusional nature of their teaching ministry. These illustrations speak of the emptiness or disillusional nature of their ministry. This becomes clear when you remember the context in which Peter is writing. Remember that Peter himself is from the Middle East. He's writing to people who are in Turkey. This is not exactly the most uh, luscious, fruitful environment with tons of precipitation and moisture. This is a very hot and dry climate. And so water in that kind of climate is a very precious commodity. You can imagine if you're traveling through the Middle East during a hot, dry spell, and you're dying of thirst, and your body is overheating. And how big of a disappointment would it be if you saw a spring in the distance, and when you came there expecting a giant pool of water to quench your thirst and, and to give you hydration, you found nothing less than it being dry. You can imagine how disillusioned you'd be to figure, find that out at the last minute. Or if you saw mist forming in the sky or saw clouds forming with the promise of rain. And so you think right on, it's going to cool down, I'm going to get relief. And next thing you know, the wind comes in and blows those clouds and that mist away. And you're left in the hot sun. Again, imagine how disappointed or disillusioned you'd be uh, if this was going to happen. You'd have this significant promise of relief only for it to disappear before your eyes. So you were basically given false hope. False hope. Well, Peter says that's exactly what the ministry of the false teachers is like. Verse 19 describes them as this. They promise freedom. They promise freedom, promise hope, relief in God. But they are themselves slaves of corruptions. So at first glance, everything looks good. There's a promise that uh, look ahead. Uh, everything sounds good. There is promise of spiritual vitality, a relief, but in the end, the ministry is nothing but a mirage who leaves its people thirsty spiritually, dry and barren. Now, this got me thinking because this is in stark contrast to the hope of the water that Jesus speaks about in, his, in himself. Do you remember the scene in John chapter four when he comes to the, he, uh, he comes to the well in Samaria? And he has a discussion with a woman there, and he's talking her, to her about water. She thinks he's speaking about physical water, but he's speaking about spiritual water. And he says this to her as he goes back and forth. Everyone who drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 7, you remember the scene there? Jesus is in the feast of, uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, teaching in the temple. And he stands up in a loud voice with thousands listening to him. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom, who, whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. So again, these men are offering them um, these, this uh, supposed uh, water, but they're springs without water, right? They're providing them with mist, but they're actually, they're not, they're mist given away by the storm. They're promising them this spiritual revival, this freedom in Christ, but it only leads to destruction and corruption if they follow that teaching. Jesus, on the other hand, the living water he offers by the, the, the way to salvation and the, the, the way to live out the Christian life, you know, rejecting arrogance, rejecting sensuality, those types of things, living for the flesh, those are the true paths to, to glory. So Peter's message is strong and clear. Don't listen to these guys. Don't listen to these men. Um, they are slaves of corruption, even though they themselves promise freedom. And then he says something very interesting in verse 19. He says, For by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. And there's an important spiritual principle in this for us, church. Here's the, here's the simple truth of what he's saying. Whatever controls you, enslaves you. Whatever controls you is your master. For these false teachers, what controlled them? Well, their fleshly desires. So, therefore, they were slaves to that. And they were mastered by that. You know, arrogance, in, in John chapter, sorry, in 1 John, he describes what the lust of the world is. And there he actually says that one of the categories is the boastful pride of life. Well, where does arrogance fit into that? <laughs> Pretty clear. These men are also controlled by fleshly desires. What does 1 John say about that? You're a friend of the world if you obey the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes. So again, these men are controlled by their flesh and therefore they are mastered by it. And therefore they are enslaved by it. So there's a key principle for us as well, church. Whatever controls you and I ultimately enslaves you and I. So it could be sex. That could be food. That could be our finances, our money, our pursuit of it. It could be our pride. It can be things even like unforgiveness. If you are controlled by sex, food, money, pride, unforgiveness, ultimately that's what enslaves you and has master and dominate, domination in your life. This is why self-control and delayed gratification are such important godly virtues. Because what does self-control mean? It's the ability to say no to yourself, right? Delayed gratification is the ability to say not yet. Maybe later, but not yet. See, both of these qualities, self-control and delayed gratification, reject the need for the flesh to be the driving force in our lives. They're the natural antidote preventing us from being enslaved by anything. Therefore, allowing God's Spirit to be the one that masters us and to control our lives. So if the Spirit of God is the one that controls us, then the Spirit enslaves us. And that's what we want in the Christian life. That's, it's interesting because it, uh, the, the accusation against the, uh, the false teachers earlier was they deny the Master, the Lord and Master. They deny His mastership over their lives, His Lordship. So again, 
self-control, delayed gratification are important godly virtues because they prevent you from falling into, uh, into disaster and being enslaved. Well, these false teachers, of course, were enslaved. And so Peter gives them a strong warning. We pick this up in verse 20. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Peter's warning is very clear here to these false teachers and anyone else who buys into their teaching. There's a terrible fate awaiting those who once had a genuine faith in the Lord and defect from the truth. In other words, it's better for a believer never to have known the truth than to know it, known it, have known it, and then rejecting it. In other words, I think the way to say it is defection then is worse than ignorance. Defection is worse than ignorance. Now it's important we understand this in the text because many of our brothers and sisters in Christ will deny this is what Peter's saying. They will deny this is what the text says. The reason they'll deny it is because of their pre-existing theological view on eternal security. This idea that once saved, always saved. Once you're a Christian, you can never lose that and you're always going to be good with God no matter what. And so the result then is that Peter's not speaking to believers here, but just those who are fakers or look like Christians but never really were. But I'm going to make three substantiations from the text that prove this is not the case. And the first one is this. It's the P Peter's use of the word have in verse 20. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord, and so on and so forth. Notice that it doesn't say these men hoped to escape but didn't or they desired to escape but didn't. It says they have escaped. It's a, it's a done deal. In other words, at one time they were freed from the defilements of the world and it was a completed action. I say this because I was listening to a prominent pastor that you all know well on the radio, 71140, and this is his exact words. These men actually hadn't escaped, they merely wanted to. So he substituted the word have escaped with wanted to. As a result then, his take on the passage is this. These men were merely unbelievers who, feeling guilty about their lives and the way direction it was headed, wanted to try to live better. And so they started to align themselves morally with the Christianity and, and the way of Christ. So, for, so they escaped the defilements of the world in that they were at stage one, sort of, and then they just tried to morally live better, but they actually never escaped the world's defilements. So it's just a moral commitment to Christianity, but there was no genuine faith there. They tried to pull up their own bootstraps, for example. So maybe they heard, you know, you should probably stop saying Jesus Christ as a swear word, and maybe the praise word. So the guy, just every time he stubs his toe, decides to change his language a little bit, and so therefore that's how he's trying to escape the defilements of the world. The context does not support this, the word is, is have escaped, not wanted to or desired to. And I was thinking of an analogy for this. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine um, somebody uh, offends you greatly. Uh, or actually, let's not say offense. Someone does a criminal act against you that's quite violent. And they committed a serious crime against you. 
and you knew that they were dangerous to the point that you, everyone in society would agree they need to be off the street and put in jail. One day you're listening to the news after they've been charged and you hear uh, a report that these men want to escape prison but where they wanted to escape the jail. As a listener, you're like, well, of course they want to escape the jail. Who cares? But then the reporter then says this instead. By the way, these men have escaped the jail. Your response to that news report is completely different. They want to or they have escaped? Which one is it? You're having a completely different reaction depending on what, how you interpret that word. Well, it says here, these men have escaped the defilements of the world. They didn't simply want to. But an even bigger substantiation for me, besides this, was is the way Peter uses this language earlier in the letter. See, in chapter 1, verse 4, he actually describes, uses this exact language to describe a Christian. Flip back with me two pages, or one page, depending on how big your Bible is and how many notes you have at the bottom. Um, look at verses, chapter 1, verse 4. Speaking of Christians, for by these he granted to us his precious... No, wait a minute. No, yeah, I'm right. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You become a partaker of the divine nature, being a Christian, in other words, by escaping, having escaped the corruption of the world by lust. It's identical language. It describes a Christian. The second substantiation is also found in verse 20. It's the, it's the way in which these guys escape the corruption of the world. Look at uh, verse 20 again. He says, They escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So how did they get out? By knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's the avenue or means, avenue or means by which they escaped. Now our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who don't believe these men are genuine Christians argue this. The knowledge of the Lord they had here was, and I quote, purely academic, unquote, quote again, intellectual, unquote, <laughs> not saving knowledge. This knowledge was an academic and intellectual knowledge, but not saving knowledge. One pastor said this, this is nothing more than an acute awareness of Jesus and the Christian way of life, but has nothing to do with a personal relationship or saving knowledge of him. Well, this again is simply not true. Once again, um, we need to look at the context, but more than that, we can look at the way the word knowledge is used in the rest of Scripture. This exact phrase occurs two other times in the letter and always refers to someone who's saved. Turn with me to chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, To those who have received the faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. See that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us. But 3.18 is even stronger because the wording is absolutely identical. In 3.18 he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Exact phrase as we have in chapter 2 verse 18. The knowledge that Peter uses when describing anybody here is always in the terms of being a Christian. And here he uses the exact same phrase again in chapter 2. But our final, my final comment is really in verse 20. Is this comment being on the last statement becoming worse than the first? 
the last time becoming worse than the first. Peter is no doubt alluding to a teaching he received from Jesus during a three year, his three-year ministry with him. So un- to understand the context, we need to look at Matthew 12, where Jesus spoke about one person's last state becoming worse than their first. This has to do with an evil spirit that was in a man. It says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out from a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. There's no doubt Peter is borrowing from the language of Jesus. And we look at the parallels between the false teachers' lives and this demonic-possessed man, it makes total sense. See, in the demonic man, the first position he was in was under the influence of Satan. Right? He's, he's, he's got an unclean spirit. After an encounter with God, uh, his life is touched, and he's free from the Satan's power. He's no longer demonically possessed. So he moves from under Satan's influence to free of Satan's influence. He's AKA like in God's kingdom or in God's control. Somehow, we not mentioned in this text, this guy goes back to uh, sort of a demonic uh, way of life, and the demons come back seven times and sevenfold uh, and inhabit this guy again. So the guy returns to the original position he was in before, which was demonic, the influenced. But this time, it's far worse, seven times over. Peter then takes us to our text. These men, these false teachers, were one time under the influence of Satan. They, were, uh, they hadn't escaped the defilements of the world. They then, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, become free from that, but then they return to it. They were, and get themselves, quote-unquote, entangled in them all over again. And then the last state has become worse than the first. They've returned back to the original position of being under Satan's power. If this person was an unbeliever the whole time, you can't move from one state to another. There's only two states in the Bible for a person's spiritual life. You're either a Christian or non-Christian. There's no middle ground. So if you're not a non-Christian and you make a moral commitment to try to change, you're still a non-Christian. You're not moving anywhere. You're still a non-Christian. So again, context and the rest of Scripture support. These false teachers at one time had a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ and went back into the corruption of the world. Now how this what this looks like in terms of the, the, the worst state, the last state becoming worse than the first, he does not elaborate on. But I want to suggest in context, and by using the rest of Scripture, this is in relation to God's judgment. The last state is worse because of the way God's going to deal with someone in their judgment. In verse 21, he says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So Peter links... Um, links um, one person's uh, defection from Christian truth um, to this idea of being uh, worse or better in a better state. And when we look at the rest of Scripture, we can see that one's accountability and opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ and be a relationship with Him is always linked to judgment. 
Turn with me just quickly to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. verse 10. Uh, Okay. Verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to your feet we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that city for Sodom than for, for that city. Woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Therefore, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Notice the relationship between judgment and the accessibility to truth or knowing the truth. Here's Jesus walking through these cities proclaiming truth. They have a chance for relationship and he's doing all these miracles in their presence and they're rejecting him. He says, woe to you because you've had the accountability to know who I am and opportunity for relationship and woe to you because it's going to be worse for you in the judgment than those other cities who didn't actually get to see and be and know me and hear my teaching. So the direct correlation between opportunity and accountability and judgment. So we bring this again back to our passage. These false teachers once had a genuine relationship. They were actually teaching people uh, the ways of the Lord and they defected. And And Peter makes it clear. Ignorance is better than defection when it comes to God's judgment. But there's one more important truth to learn here, and that's not all, therefore not all sin is equal in God's eyes. Yes, all sin is equal in terms of putting Jesus on the cross. Like every sin we do is, is, is cross-worthy, I guess you could say, and the need for his death. But not all sin is equal in terms of how God deals with it in the, in the afterlife. God judges more severely based on levels of accountability and one's response to truth. That's clear from Luke chapter 10, and therefore I suggest that's what's actually going on here in 2 Peter as well. Let's finish by looking at verse 22, and look at the two proverbs that uh, Peter uses to summarize these uh, false teachers' ministry. He compares them to the dog and the hog, right? He says, it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So we all know, as cute as your dogs are, as much as you love them, they all have a disgusting habit. No matter how fun-loving they are, right, and how nice and fluffy and soft their coats are, and how well-groomed they are, that same dog that licks your face will have no problem going back to eating its own puke after he lets it go. The dog has no problem, as cute as it is, going back to something vile and unclean. And the pig is no better. Doesn't matter how much an owner of a pig spends hosing them down, cleaning them to their satisfaction, the pig could care less. He, he's very happy to return to the very muck that you just cleansed them from. He loves being in that mud. Peter's point is obvious then. 
these false teachers in returning to the corruption of the world, something very filthy and unclean, were no different than the dog returning to their vomit in the pig in the mud. Even though these men were at one time washed and cleaned by the blood of Christ, they were anxious to return to the filth of the world and had no qualms about doing so. And so Peter makes the comparison uh, from these two Proverbs. But again, this of course is not going to happen without judgment. In verse 17 he says, these men have been reserved for the black darkness. And anyone who follows after their teaching and adopts their way of lifestyle will be in the same boat. So, a very light-hearted and uh, uplifting, encouraging message today. But again, I don't get to pick and choose. Um, hopefully the Father's Day time was uh, more profitable for you in that, in that way. But this is the reality of Scripture, and we have false teachers uh, all throughout uh, uh, our nation and even in our community. And so uh, we want to be aware of uh, all these things. So I'll leave you with three lessons. And again, it's a repeat, pretty strong repeat of what I've just said over and over. But the first one is this. Whatever controls us, enslaves us. Right? Whatever controls us, enslaves us. We can be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and which will mean to put our flesh aside. You know, the, to the pride, the, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eye. Or, uh, the, you know, all those things. Um, we can put those aside and be controlled by our spirit, or we can be enslaved by those things. And uh, as a Christian person, uh, we, have, we, uh, we can be enslaved by and both sides of the coin. God obviously desires that we are completely controlled by His Spirit. But as we know, the flesh is an ugly thing. It can often rise up. Uh, but the issue is when it, it, it becomes to a point where it has domination over our life. And uh, it becomes a pattern. And we do not want to be enslaved by the things that we've been freed from uh, after receiving Jesus Christ. Whatever controls us, enslaves us. Lesson number two. It's possible for a genuine Christian to walk away from the relationship with Jesus Christ. This is so obvious in the text. These men had escaped the defilements of the world. They did it through a saving knowledge of the Lord, not an intellectual knowledge. And this last state becoming worse than the first only makes sense if you put it in the context of a, a Christian a non-Christian moving to Christianity and moving back. It makes no sense if you're a non-Christian who tries to get out of non-Christian mode. He never actually leaves any state. He stays in that state. He's just trying morally harder. So again, the context clearly makes this clear. And the final lesson, in terms of God's judgment of an individual, ignorance to truth is better than defection from truth. Luke makes this clear uh, very in his... Uh, warning to uh, Coruscant and Bethsaida and uh, a person who has embraced Christ and then abandons him for the world will receive a harsher judgment than if they'd never known him at all. That's clear. The demonic possessed man who went from a, like a single demon it looks like to a sevenfold demon from a defecting from truth and this is clear with the false teachers who the judgment is going to be worse than it was if they had never made a commitment to him in the first place. So again, these are the three lessons for the day, and uh, let's have a time of discussion.